Hello, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. My name is Ned Buskirk, your creatively conscious mortality host. I am, in fact, mortal, but I am your host who is creatively conscious about his mortality. Because you are going to die, we are all going to die, and the mission, our mission, I'd say, is to make creative room for us to source the inevitability of our dying, our death, to inspire a deeper, richer experience of being alive. And I believe that it doesn't require some professional to do it for us. It, it isn't actually about definitive answers out there in the world. It's not about some science to get us there. I believe personally that it's about creativity. How do we creatively engage with something that's absurd and ridiculous and makes no sense living lives that are absurd and ridiculous and make no sense? <laughs> I think it takes a lot of creativity to engage with these things because, boy, they're out of reach otherwise. And so often on the show, we have a lot of people who are guests that work in death and dying, palliative care, hospice, end of life all those shenanigans <laughs> that await us or we're in the midst of now, which might be why you're listening, but whatever reason you're listening, uh, that might be a guess you'd find here on the show. But also often there's people that are artists, musicians, writers. And this episode has a guest who's kind of both or was one and now is another, or you'll get it. I've known about Caleb Wilde for years now. I think it was something like You're Going to Die Social Media met his social media. His book, uh, an award-winning book, Confessions of a Funeral Director, might have given him uh, quite a bit of visibility, but his use of social media, I think probably more than that, helped somehow eventually connect us. And I'm almost glad I didn't talk to him when he was a funeral director. And you'll find when you read his newest book, all the ways our dead still speak. And when you listen to this conversation, he's made the decision, a sixth generation funeral director of 20 years, he's left the family business, Wild Funeral Home, just this past August. And I'm kind of wonder if us having this conversation now gave us access to things we couldn't have accessed before uh, when he actually was a funeral director. And it's and it's interesting because I think him as a guest on this show is both someone who's been the professional and likely will be some other professional in the conversation of death and dying. He certainly has the background for it. He has a postgraduate degree in death, religion, and culture from Winchester University in England. And he's got these 20 years of doing this work as a funeral director. So he's got the professionalism and the professional experience, but also he's choosing to not do that. And, and so then he is the creative in the world. 
He's the one who's creatively decided for his own health and well-being to move on and maybe be in the death and dying conversation in a new way. It sure seems uh, likely, almost impossible that he wouldn't be. But I love this conversation because we both get to have him as what he was and right now at the transition into what he will become. And when I ask him about that in the conversation, you'll see it's like we really are right there. The book gets us to this conversation in the podcast. It's almost like the book is I quit the funeral industry and then him and I getting to talk right now is what happens next. And and certainly that's exactly how it went for me. I finished the book and then I get to talk to him and say, well, what's next? And he has a lot more questions than answers. So I think you're going to really love this episode. It's my new favorite. Caleb is so good to listen to, and I really feel like you get his heart. The only other thing I'll mention is just keep in mind, uh, we're talking about uh, his work, and a lot of his work comes from his family lineage. So kind of out of nowhere, I'll be mentioning people like Pop Pop and talking about his dad. There's there's just a lot of discussion about people um, that are part of his lineage that we need to kind of touch on as we explore where he's at right now and what he's come from. So let's get to it. How'd I do? Is this intro like 30 minutes? Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I have no idea. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's over now. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Caleb Wild. Well, let's see. I think I've cried twice today. Uh, and... Before there, this call, yeah, <laughs> that's a, is that like a record for you in comparison to the last well, couple decades? I've been setting new records, it seems, every week. Um, yeah, there's caretaking and the funeral business. If it's appro- approached with the correct perspective, it it's a caregiving business. It's a service business, um, and being that mine was tied to family it kind of consumed so much of my life investing in other people that I forgot who I was. Um, what do I like? What don't I like? Um, because when you're constantly dealing with people who just lost a loved one, it's hard to justify giving your own problems attention yeah. because they're going through something worse. Uh, and a lot of funeral directors, a lot of caregivers uh, struggle with that. It's, and I've said this before, it's like an honorable codependency in the sense that we're legitimately helping people, but we lose our identity in that. And so while my parents have been supportive, um, nobody really understands what I'm doing. Mm. And you still feel you're feeling that. Yeah, sixth yeah. generation um, yeah, man. on my dad's side. Uh, I would have been the fifth. My math isn't so good uh, on my mom's side. So she comes from a funeral director family as well. So well, that was always the it expectation. It is that complicated. <laughs> you got the yeah. two family lineages, like you kind of in the intersection of all that. Yep. I was born and my future was predetermined. <laughs> When I was born, <laughs> I yeah, make the man. joke that the carousel that hung over my crib instead of cows and drafts, it had hearses and caskets. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the, the brainwashing yes. was subtle, uh, but mm-hmm. 
I was groomed. And looking back now, I can see it a lot more clearly than I could when I was young. And uh, so it's it's been a very lonely decision. Mm. Uh, lonely because now I have to find myself again, uh, find my voice again, discover again who I am and where I fit in the world apart from helping people in the business and also being in a situation where I don't feel seen by the people who have been closest to me. And that's okay. And it's okay to not feel seen, uh, but it still hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Um, just even an acknowledgement for the risk, you know, the, the leap that you've taken in the last couple months, um, the measurement f- for its significance, of course, would have this like other side of, um, um, what's missing now. I mean, part of how you were seen was folded into those generations and all that work for two decades. So now like, who are you? And, and I mean, it's, first of all, I want to acknowledge huge spoiler alerts for, for those of you that haven't read Caleb's book. Um, and I almost want to say like, you know, with permission, we're do. this is how we have to have the conversation. Like this is where you are now, but the book really is about you coming to terms with this decision. You've now already made real. Um, so I guess in a way there, there is a, there is a, there is a version that I, I think we could maybe try to give the listener, which is like, what is that bridge between the book and now? And I guess maybe there's a fill in the fill in the like, what have the last few months been like maybe? And you could be like, I don't know if I need to get into that. You might be more clear what's needed right now. There's this moment I'm feeling where it's like, everybody stop listening, go read the book and then come back here. Cause this is what it feels like talking with you. It feels like I'm, we're literally, I get to talk to you as what's next after reading the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Part of it was a, well, a huge part of it was a mental health decision. Mm -hmm. I knew that I couldn't sustain carrying uh, the grief of families. And some people are able to do that. Some people are able to be a funeral director their entire lives and work in a setting where they're seeing the overdoses, the tragic deaths, and go home and be a perfect family man or woman Mm -hmm. or be able to have a life outside of their work. I couldn't. Uh, And and that's a hard acknowledgement that's been viewed as something that's selfish, you know, that I, that I'm selfishly attempting to care for myself above other people, including my family Mm -hmm. and uh, those that I serve. So it, it has been a complicated couple months Mm. where I've had to just decide that what people are talking about right now and thinking about me, I just have to let that be. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can't allow their perception of my decision to determine where I'm at presently. So I'm meditating a lot, a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like literally, you're sitting and meditating. (laughs) Yes, I I am (laughs) meditating uh, daily. I've got all the apps. (laughs) Calm, insight timer, list them off. So wait, now what do you think, 
how is that contrast to, or somehow relief or solace? I don't know. What is it in contrast to what you just described is happening, let's say in, in your community or with your community in response to all this? Like why is meditation, I mean, I could guess, but like, why is that really what's offering you relief? What does it offer you? <laughs> I shouldn't make no, no assumption. Why meditation? Um, I lost the now somewhere along the way. Mm. I, I lost being able to be present. Um, when I, I could be present at work. Uh, I had to be present at work and I was good at being present at work, but being present with myself, uh, I, I, I had lost that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, it's been really challenging and I think that's, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. The process of me healing from nearly 20 years in the business, being able to give grace and patience to myself, um, has been a challenge, but meditation is one of the ways where I've been able to sit down uh, or lay down uh, and allow my thoughts to uh, to occur non-judgmentally, uh, allow my feelings to occur non-judgmentally, and find a way to give the same patience that I gave to so many people mm. to myself. Um, yeah. And that's another thing that's difficult uh, for those of us who are in caregiving um, professions. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just so easy for us to extend this immense amount of grace, this immense amount of love, and then criticize ourselves for every iota that we see is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that's, that's kind of where I am. I'm attempting to uh, be able to give myself the, the same grace that I've given to other people, mm -hmm. the same uh, kindness. Yeah. Um, that, and meditation has been the space where, where that's happened. Because mm. um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, yeah. What were you going to say? You kind of what? Well, I was going to cuss and then I decided I'm, I'm kind of screwed up. <laughs> you kind of There's other words that I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean like, yeah, okay. Can I just reflect a little bit also to just give you a little, little, I make no comparisons to what you've been through the last, uh, it's been two decades, right? Of, of your kind of having been brought into the work. Yeah. I feel like that's what you say in your book. It's like 20 years mm. of you doing the work you've been doing. Yeah. So I don't compare, I'm not, I'm not comparing what I do to, to, to what you've been through, but I do feel like there was emotionally a knowing of familiarity when I was reading your book. And I'm, I'm like very excited because <laughs> I'm, because I'm, I'm really feeling what you, the version of it that I have is I'll do a grief and healing workshop. It's two hours of holding space for 10 to 12 uh, community members really in it. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are really in it. And I'll do all the spacious holding, all the listening, all the tears, mm -hmm. all the right things to be said, yeah. all the right quiet, you know, and receiving, witnessing. And, 
And let's acknowledge that that takes a lot of work. It totally it, does. It does. Thank you. It, it, You're right. I know it you It takes would know. a lot of energy. Um, I it's know you would know. energy well spent, but God, afterwards, it's, yeah, we just yeah. need an app. Well, then I go, I can't have, gosh, if I could just have an app. Right. But like, then I got to go in the other, like literally those are wild because I'm in a Zoom, right? I'm doing this with you. Like that's where I'm doing the workshop with the online one that we do. And so I walk through the door back here and I'm immediately with my wife and kids. And, and just last week, you know, my wife called me out, you know, and it's like, you're, I hear you out there. And I can feel you just don't have the patience here. Like you just, you're so quick to frustration and, and she's right. And, and so there's this excitement I have around this decision you've made and not to make it trite or minimize it or, or not to, to dismiss how hard it's been for you. But, you know, you talk about in your book, you talk about Pop Pop, right? It's, it's about like who, who he became after he stopped working at the, the funeral home for your dad, for his family and feeling that for you. And, and wondering, is there already some of that emerging, you know, in these couple months where you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm here with my kids in a way that I haven't been for their lives enough. I don't know. Like, have you been experiencing some of oh, those yeah. moments? Yeah. Um, and just as an aside, uh, there's a lot of abuse in the those who work in the funeral industry towards those closest to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an unacknowledged tragedy where they'll come home and whoever it is that they're coming home to will receive the angst, the anger, the frustration uh, projected onto them. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't think the funeral business should exist. Let, let, let me just be completely honest. Yeah. Um, we've commodified death. We've found ways to profit on other people's losses. So the industry itself exploits the grieving, but it also exploits the worker. Mm. And uh, I don't think that we are meant to experience death over and over, even though it's not our personal death. Uh, it, it destroys a part of us and that destroyed part generally um, affects those closest to us, whether it be mm -hmm. partner uh, or children or friends. Um, and I think that's true for, uh, for a lot of other caregiving professions as well. Yeah. Um, I, I was speaking um, at a funeral conference uh, earlier this year about burnout compassion fatigue, PTSD in the funeral industry. And I called that out. Uh, and there was, you know, there was a good amount of people there, maybe 200 people. And the room just fell silent. Um, I, I asked them to take a good hard look at if they want to know, are, are, are you burnout? Uh, are you suffering from a trauma in your body that you haven't been able to deal with? Look at how you treat your family. Look at how you treat your loved ones. And that's usually the best indicator of where we're mm -hmm. at. Um, or, and even more intimate, how we treat ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, alcoholism is uh, quite prevalent 
in the funeral industry. And um, while I myself uh, like to drink every once in a while, I, I've done my best to make sure that I don't drown my own sorrows in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot others do. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's a sad thing. And to be completely um, transparent and vulnerable, um, the home life of my family, my grandfather towards my dad, um, it's, it's, it was really sad to see. And my, when my grandfather died, I, my dad and him were not at a good spot. And I decided, um, soon before he died that I was going to be the martyr, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where I would start making the decisions at the funeral home that I knew my grandfather wouldn't like that my dad had been making. Because I, I remember I went to my dad's house and I said, um, he's going to die. He's, he's almost 90, you know, we don't live forever. Mm -hmm. And if he were to die today, would there be anything that you regretted? And, um, you know, it was very moving. We both cried. Uh, and when he was dying, he asked for my dad. And, uh, you know, I'm that for my dad has meant so much because mm-hmm. it was in their own way a, a form of reconciliation. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would like to think that I played a part in that, mm-hmm. but it, it's, yeah, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a business of something so personal, personal that uh, it's just not meant to be. It's not meant to be the way it is. Um, yeah. Good to hear you say this and then be able to ask you the question um, from your experience and from your education. Um, you know, what is the, what is the alternative? And, and yeah. I, I, just to kind of maybe even like take a, take a leap here and feed a line, you know, I have one of these open mics, you know, Thursday night. And, and part of what I think, and I, I, I wonder if you had this experience, it seems like you probably did. The funeral industry is this like, put it all on our shoulders kind of thing, right? It's like, that's the place. That's the place in town. Might, there might be more than one, but like, that's where you go. And so you got this family or people that are working there really holding a job that community should probably and used to be more involved mm. in. And, and that what I think potentially could be one of the alternatives is more of this, like communally, we're making room regularly. We're making mm. room, you know, and, and I, you know, in terms of logistics, I don't know what that looks like. You know, I don't know what it looks like to go and get a, the body that you've had to get countless times from a home. You know, who's going to do that? You know, how is that moment going to work? You know, but, but then again, you do know somewhere in communities, even in the United States, there are people going to help at a home with a dead body, you know, and doing the things that need to happen to like get that body buried and, and treat it honorably and, and, Anyway, so that's that's my kind of answering the question in my own way, like what's missing, what could be an alternative, and wondering what your thoughts are, you know? And maybe you're like, listen, I just quit two months ago. I don't know yet. <laughs> but 
but <laughs> no, I I have a lot of opinions on Are this. Sure? So it's 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 something that I've thought about, and uh, uh, in order to keep our jobs throughout the last hundred and seventy years that the funeral industry has been industrialized or professionalized, we had to make a distinction from the community by becoming professionals. Right. Um, and uh, somewhere professional became defined by what we know and the lobbying that the industry has done to make sure that we have to be involved in the process, um, which is the case in most states. And uh, my, my thing is that it's all wrong. You know, what defines a professional around death has very little to do with knowledge, uh, but has everything to do with love. Mm -hmm. And so if we care for our loved ones during life, and then all of a sudden we die and we abdicate that responsibility to the professionals, there's something, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. Um, Loving somebody in death is the natural expression of loving them in life. Um, but we've, the other thing that we've done is we've made death so frightening that so scary. And we've taken it out of community. You know, people die now in hospitals. And mm -hmm. uh, I love hospice. Hospice has done a wonderful thing because we've brought death back into the home, which is where it needs, uh, you know, obviously not everything, there's no cookie cutter here of yeah. right and wrong. But the closer that we can get to it, the less scary it becomes because the more that we see it's not foreign. Death isn't something that is uh, outside of me. I am, I am embodied in both. And it's something that I talk about in my book where we exist as living people in a liminal space. We yeah. are not just alive. We also carry the dead with us and we are both. Yeah. The, who we are, uh, as simple as our, the language that we've grown up with, uh, we embody our ancestors. We embody death. We embody those who have already died. And so we are both dead and alive and we straddle that. But we've somewhere along the way, we've been so far removed from death that we've become to think that it's not human to die, mm -hmm. that it's some type of failure mm -hmm. uh, to die. But that can't be farther from the truth because it's, it's who we are. Yeah. It's not a failure. Uh, yeah. We are mortal. Um, and removing death from society um, by professionalizing dying, by professionalizing death, uh, we've, we've, come to see, we've come to believe the false idea that the professionals are the people with the licenses. I think a, a good therapist knows how to give their power away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a yes, good yes, therapist knows how to empower the person that they're speaking to. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to be the shift in the funeral industry. Instead of trying to take it away from the community, 
the shift for what defines a good funeral director is one who gives their knowledge and gives their power away instead of hoarding it. And it's in then caring for our dead is in us. It's only mm-hmm. been in the last 150 years just in the United States that we've professionalized mm-hmm. this. So who we are and who has brought us here, caring for our dead has been a natural part of our human history up until recently. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we're getting away um, by, by leaving uh, the the confines of the funeral industry. It's not that we're getting away from what should be. We're getting back to what has been. We're reviving our human tradition uh, that has been commodified by capitalism. I'm just going to sing a song for you that I'm going to make up on the spot. This song is for you. I'm doing the work of, of spontaneously singing to you. And my hope is that you getting the risk I'm taking by trying to sing a song out of the blue to you will get you to actually go and rate and review the podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to You're Going to Die, the podcast. This song is meant to get you to just stop right now, whatever else you're doing other than listening to the show, and go into your app and rate and review the show. Okay? So here it is. This is a song to you. This is a song to you, the listener. Ooh, this is a song to you. This is a song to you, our loyal listener. Go into your phone, open up your computer, just click the link. Go into the app, go into the app, click five stars. Click, 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 five stars. Leave some words, a review or two. This is for your ear canals. I think at this point, um, what I'm going to do is not sing anymore um, so that you don't have to suffer through that. And, um, And then your thank you to me for stopping singing this song is going into your Apple podcast app, your Spotify app, take the three seconds it takes to click a star, give us a review, share some words of why you love the show. And please, whether it's me singing or not, please know how much it matters to us that you are listening. We're so glad you're here. Let us know with a rating and review why you're so glad that we're here.
course, I don't know when this is going to be released, but we're in the beginning of October and we have uh, Halloween coming up. Um, and different cultures have had different terms for it. There's the idea of, of thin spaces where there's times in our life where we feel more connected to the dead or that the dead are closer to us uh, than they are in other spaces. And, you know, there's that term of, of a thin space mm -hmm. where all of a sudden now we can see the on scene. Like behind the veil, um, yeah. Like behind the veil. And that's not necessarily a spiritual idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think part of the difficulty in giving this back to the community is that for so long, the community has been solely religious. And of course, we're, uh, especially here in the West, we're moving away from that. Um, and it, so we, we kind of have lost parts of how we've cared for the dead. And those same principles can be applied religious or not. And this idea of liminality uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to believe in some type of other dimension yeah. where spirits dwell. Um, because I, as I kind of make the point, um, the, the dead are, the dead dwell in us, mm -hmm. uh, in ways that we can't even understand, or we're just beginning to understand like, uh, like epigenetics, mm -hmm. uh, is a, a scientific idea where trauma is genetically passed down. Um, and so we have experiences that reside in the bodies of those we come from and also reside in ours. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be spiritual to believe that the dead are in us. It, it doesn't have to be religious to believe that the dead are still present. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, it's it's that rock thrown into the st the still lake, mm -hmm. uh, or it's the light of the dead star that we still see, even though the the star has been dead for millions of years. Right. It's yeah. still still there. Yeah, and I, I love this line in your book that says it's like you're quoting Celeste, and it is the like, and it feels like it lands here. It's like we don't need to make sense of it. It doesn't have to be like science proven or even spirituality belief proven um or committed to it's the listening to it you know that's that that line in the book that really landed for me is like it's our job to listen like we're not supposed yeah, to be not, like non-judgmentally yeah, right yeah mm. Mm, i love that mm. line so yeah meditative death or meditating on uh allowing ourselves to instead of rejecting certain ideas because they're associated with things that we disagree with, mm -hmm. uh, finding ways to embrace these experiences on our own terms, I think is important. But these, these thin spaces where we feel closer to the dead, uh, the idea of, of liminality is a threshold where you're, uh, like the the entrance of a building and you have one foot in the building and one foot outside of the building so you're standing in between it's this it's a, this being of in-betweenness and uh you aren't in or you aren't out 
and you are in and you are out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right. Uh, and when it comes to the way that we are with our own mortality and death, I feel like that's our experience. Mm-hmm. We are connected and we are not at the same time. That's a tension. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mental tension of can we accept two things that are so seemingly opposing and be able to hold space for both of them? And that's liminality. It's it's being able to believe that we can both abide with the living and abide with the dead. And finding a way to hold those two seemingly opposite truths in tension and allowing ourselves to sit there. Mm-hmm. Not because we're attempting to experience something, but because that's who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we sit in that tension mm-hmm. of life and death. Yeah. We sit in the tension of, of being so close to either one of seeing uh, and feeling the presence of our loved ones while knowing that they're dead, but feeling them very much alive. And death is full of these tensions where we have at a funeral, the deepest tears we can cry and the deepest laughter Mm -hmm. where we can both feel despair and hope where we are feeling alone but surrounded. And so these tensions that exist in death that we feel are a small part of something bigger, which, you know, as I believe is that we're, we are both dead and alive. <laughs> I just, we're, we, we sit in that tension. Yeah. I, I really love that so much. And I have to connect it to the vision that you describe in the book that I talked about at the beginning of our call, you know, that I think the next like level of practicing that while it's certainly a personal, deeply personal, can be a deeply personal practice and work, you know, making room for that understanding our own beings with our own lineage, um, our own relationship to death and life. Um, but that the vision you had for me, and I'm just like projecting a ton because I'm like, I, I I have to believe that it's a communal like opportunity, and that in fact mm-hmm. that's part of what can strengthen these what you're describing. One way I think yes. significantly to strengthen what you're describing is to have places where we go where we can circle that collective dead body, you know, like your vision describes mm-hmm. in the book. Do you? I mean, even Joan, I, I feel like. Is Joan the character who, in the dream, she brings something to God and it's the funeral? Mm, is, that, yeah. is that Joan? Yeah, yeah, yeah that was uh, at the very beginning and then I looped it back right. to the end. Right, um, but it feels like that, like, this, is of, our, this is the offering of like gathering, community gathering, another version of that in the book, you know? Yeah, um, this I, and of course, you know, this is, something deeply embedded in us in the United States and in other Western cultures is this uh, idea of individuality that's disconnected from other people. Um, We are inextricably connected. Mm -hmm. uh, And somewhere along the line, we think that we aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And there's, there's certainly, again, it's one of those tensions again, where we're both ourselves and not ourselves. We both own who we are, but we're also built by those around us. Um, and so when that's applied to death, if we want to, so to speak, resurrect the dead, if we want to invite the dead back into uh, our space, my perspective of the dead is of the person who's died is limited to my own relationship. But if we can bring all of these relationships together, mm-hmm. we piece by piece, and that's that's the beauty of like the the most powerful funerals that I attended mm. were ones where somehow, somewhere along the line, it felt like the dead were there. Yeah, I love like that. The, these stories that are being shared and everybody coming together in this mystical thing that we call community. And all of a sudden, I feel like I know the person who died. Yeah. Not because they're there, but because they abide with their loved ones and their loved ones are coming together and somehow. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, you know, grief, grief, funerals, um, if we approach it from an individualistic perspective, it's, it's a lot more difficult than when we can bring all of our experiences, our love and of course, you know, some people shouldn't be remembered. I mean, that that's awful I know you to make say. T- you make room to <laughs> to talk about that in the book, which I really appreciate. Yeah. I mean, we 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 can't make a blanket statement here. Um some things um some things should die. Mm-hmm. Um and others can be resurrected. And it's up to us to choose. It is. It's up to us to choose yeah. how that works. I'm I'm going um, to this but, funeral this weekend, and reading your book has me just set up for. I've got to be careful because I feel like I'm going to get up on the mic and just be like Caleb said, and here's what I think, you know. And it's just, but there is this part of me that wants to, and I think it'll be obviously more subtle and emotional than that, and 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 easily accessible though after talking with you and reading your book. And it is something that I believe happens when I name my mom at uh, one of the open mics, which is like when she comes through that door, instantly everybody else is dead is are, are piling in, you know, and it's that simple. And there's not a figuring out, you know, we don't know how it happens or why, but I could say simply, it's like, well, when I name my dead, your dead are invited. And, and, and just that act mm. alone brings them into the room and knowing the funeral yeah with your help already, like this memorial I'm going to feels so needed for me and my dad and my mom. Yeah. Right. You know, accented by the fact that this woman was another mom that I grew up with and they were from my mom and her were friends, but, but even still anyone that comes into that space this, this weekend, I hope gets a version of what you're describing, which is like all of us with our dead. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
I don't think you're saying anything about like in the book about celebrations of life being a problem, but I think interestingly, it just rides this wild line, no pun intended, um, of that really wasn't <laughs> an intended pun, <laughs> but, but it, <laughs> but it rides this line where you start to be like, am I sitting with the living version of my dead or am I sitting with my dead in the book you describe being at a celebration of life and feeling like you're sitting down to have coffee with the living version of a person, but, but that there's an opportunity if that you just make that intention more clear or that practice more like present that it's, it's a chance to sit with the dead version of that person in our lives. Does that resonate with you at all? Suddenly it's just like, is that the difference? I don't know. You know, it's funny because, and, and I'm sure, you know, you realize this, but when you write books, uh, <laughs> you, they, they, they were usually written a while back. Yeah. Well, here, know, let, so, me, here, let me give you a little more context. <laughs> you said, you talk, this is what you talk about, actually, you're talking about a white funeral. And you say that often yes. with the white funerals, the celebration of life tends to be the default. And you hear people come to those spaces and tell stories about the living, like the living version of who who's mm. died. And so then you describe it as an opportunity to like, you feel like you could sit at those funerals and have a cup of coffee, like you're sitting with that living person still, you know? And I don't know yeah. that in the book you're trying to make a distinction because you don't make it that strong. But for me, there's something about the celebration of life that I'm probably projecting that's a little bit of like our inclination to like, let's just keep them there instead of use mm. this opportunity to like welcome their, I mean, deadness in a way, like this new, uh, this birth into a new new stage of existence or whatever, you know, I don't even know the right words to use, but that's how I read that segment. Yeah. Because there's this chance then that I'm trying to connect to what we've been talking about for 20 minutes, which is like, how do we make room more in these moments, these funerals, these memorials, and regularly to sit with our dead? Yeah. No, we, uh, the, the history that we bring to death, and this is the an ancestral thing again, uh, especially those of us from European descent, is we've tried to copy the God that has been so intri intricately a part of the culture that we come from, who is on emotional, who stands at a distance mm -hmm. and who probably doesn't feel anyways. And we've emulated that. Uh, and, um, you know, whether or not we still believe in that God, that heritage is still a part of us where we privatize it. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay, mm -hmm. you know, but it's also good to recognize it, that this isn't the only way, yeah. you know, there, there are expressions of grief. And, you know, this is something that I've had the privilege of seeing by being invited to spaces that aren't white, uh, where it feels like the dead come to the funeral mm -hmm. and there's a power to that mm -hmm. that i can't describe on <laughs> that, that it's hard to understand unless you've experienced yeah. it where the the songs that are sung uh it just feels like you're singing with 
the generations who have gone before. And it's not just my grief, but it's, and it's not just the living's grief that we're feeling. It's generational grief. And uh, that's, that's something that I think we can learn from for those of us who are coming from this very ind- individualistic, privatized view of, of, of grieving and death. And, uh, um, well, we have a lot to learn. Um, when, you, when you said that version of the funeral industry needs to stop to the 200 people, I'm not sure how you phrased it at that event, but did everyone went quiet, but did you get a sense afterwards or ever what it really was like for that community? I'm assuming they're all funeral directors or working in the funeral industry. Um, what it was like for them to hear you say that, even if it was like upset. Um, but also wondering if someone was like, you really spoke to some, you know, did you get any kind of feedback after that moment? Yeah. Um, so again, on the theme that funeral directors like to drink, uh, if the funeral director conventions are, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there is a lot of alcohol spilled. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, after I gave that, um, uh, you know, a session, there was a generational funeral director who came there with his dad, who was in his 80s. And of course, you know, there's a lot of generational differences mm-hmm. between the way that we, you know, the, my generation, I'm a, I'm an elder millennial. Um, transparency is seen as something that's good. Whereas in the World War II generation and, you know, that whole era, uh, transparency is seen as something that's weak. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this guy came up to me uh, afterwards, and he was maybe in his fifties, but he was just bawling, and and he, because um, I I was talking about abuse, and he said he leaned over to his dad, and he said, "You've done this to me," um, hmm. and his dad just didn't say anything, hmm. and he said after. After I said that, I decided it's probably time for me to leave. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it 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 definitely it definitely hit. Um, and uh, you know, there was others as well, but I resonated with that. Yeah, I mean, you're going to uh, get both because right? that's you're going to get people that are like, yeah you're speaking my experience and then you're going to get, like you said, maybe even not generational, generational, but yeah, resistance. Right. Which always to me feels like you're right at the truth. That's the truth. It would, it would, it, that's what would yeah. happen when you say the truth. Yeah. 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 And I, I, part of talking about burnout to the funeral, funeral industry is looking at different ways that generations have dealt with emotions. Uh, because in the industry, you have millennials and you have boomers, um, and slowly dying out uh, are you know those who made the boomers, mm-hmm. um, and so there's this clash of how we show emotions and uh, these misperceptions from both onto the other, um, and that that's partially why a funeral director hits their their pinnacle in their sixties and seventies 
because at that point it's their friends that they're serving. Yeah. You know, their 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 friends are starting to pass mm-hmm. away. They're serving the families, uh, and so you know, most other occupations, you know, you might hit your peak in your forties or fifties, maybe thirties if it's you know something that's physical, but. In the funeral industry, it's sixties and seventies because you know that those are your yeah. people. Your people are starting to die, um, and so generally, you'll see eighty-year-olds in the funeral industry who just won't give it up until they have to. Uh, and then you'll have the twenty-something who comes in from funeral school with uh, the the blue hair and um, and just something that doesn't connect at all with the eighty-year-old. And uh, so you have another layer of difficulty. And I, I, this is something else that I said, is that most of the abuse that funeral directors receive are from funeral home owners. Um, uh, they, it's really easy to put on a face of compassion in front of people. And then when it's done, um, to take out frustration on those under mm-hmm. you. Um, and, um, so I, I, I told, I, I said, if you are being abused by your owner, mm-hmm. leave. You said this uh, at that event too? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And, and that was, uh, that was met with, uh, <laughs> some death looks and some tears. I mean, um, and I, not the good know, death looks. <laughs> no, like, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of yeah, it, it, a, 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 a funeral um, work uh, conference, but yeah, people were upset, like visibly upset. The the owners, the owners yeah. were visibly upset. Yeah, and those who were not, uh, you know, like I said, there was a number of people who started crying. Did um, you know by then that you were going to quit when this conference happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were uh, you talking about it openly there? No. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to talk about it until, um, it had, well, of course my book was released before it happened, uh, but realizing that not everybody had read my book, I've kind of kept it under wrap until I actually did it. Wow. Um, I, well, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that you're talking with me openly, uh, only a couple months after this decision was finally made and um, feeling like, again, grateful for the chance to connect and, and, and hear from you now um, after that, uh, knowing then also how much it might mean to be talking about it with me. You know, um, I'm sure it's, it's not, not a simple undertaking to, to jump on this call with someone who didn't. No pun intended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wow, I did not expect this many puns and dad jokes that would get snuck into this. I guess we're both dads. Um, so I'm wanting to acknowledge. I'm wanting to acknowledge that, uh, and I'm also wanting to make a little room for, um, I guess what it means right now. You know, it's like to you know because I feel how immensely important it is for you to have been clear about this in ways that connect to our culture, you know, and, and the funeral industry and, and the problems, uh, you know, that we face in these contexts. 
and knowing that it's not just a personal decision, that it that now more than ever, I'm clear that it also connects to a lot of things that are wrong and unfixable and shouldn't be yours to fix. Um, but then now yeah. it just makes me want to hear maybe too soon, you know, what now, you know, like, what do you, you, you've, you made this decision. I would say from a position that is m- arguably measurably a more successful version of being a funeral director than any that I know of. And that's both because of the story personally of you and your town and the generations that has led to you doing this work, but also social media and the literature and your writing and being able to be someone that would go to a conference like this and speak like knowing you may have like severed all these ways that that's your identity and, and those opportunities then go with them. And just wondering now, like, what is it feeling like this early, understandably, to, to be at the w- what's next, knowing there is more and knowing you, you even write a little bit about what that could be, what that is, wanting to give you a chance to talk a little bit about it if you want. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks for listening. And that, that's, the, that, that's kind of why... <laughs> It's, it's, it was, you know, we, we, it's, it's taken me a little bit to, to nail our conversation mm, down. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and know. there's other people who've reached out that I haven't gotten back to because I don't know. Mm. I'm figuring out who I am again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 so much of my identity has been wrapped up in what I do that, you know, it's, it's trite, but we're not human doings, right? We've heard, we've heard that. Yeah. We're human beings. Um, but again, here we are in, uh, America where what you do is much more important than, and often rewarded. I mean, we can look at (laughs) past presidents. Yeah. It's not who they are. It's not their character that we voted for. Mm-hmm. It's what they what we perceive they'll do for us. Mm-hmm. And um so I'm trying to disconnect myself from that. I I, I feel like I'm becoming a hippie. So maybe that's what <laughs> that's I'm gonna what's do. That. <laughs> yeah, that's what's next. Infections from yeah, um, gonna buy a couple goats and uh, some chickens
So much gratitude to Caleb Wild. Really nice having him on the show. Really special to be in a conversation weeks before and get to have that experience. Like I've said so many times on the show, just such an honor. And then to listen to the conversation like I'm not even a part of it and get something out of it that I didn't even get when I talked to the guest. So feeling that right now, Thanks to Caleb Wild. If you want his newest book, All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak, you can go and get that at www.book.calebwild.com. And per usual, that link and all the other ways to connect to Caleb's work in the world can be found in our show notes. So go ahead and go there. Go there. Uh, Nick Jaina, I can hear myself talking in your microphone. Um, is that a problem? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You're the producer. <laughs> uh, I love my voice. I love the sound of my voice. Okay. Let me see what okay. I can do. Let me make some calls. Oh, yeah. Let's, well, let, let's include this in the, <laughs> the <episode>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's drop in for 10 minutes. Tell me what you're really feeling. I got this text today, this morning, uh, from a friend who said um, that her friend from grad school had um, taken his own life recently and she was devastated and she looked at her nightstand and she saw a copy of my book, which she hadn't read yet and been waiting to read. And she read it and she said, thank you, your art is essential. And I I cried because it was just like those words um, in that context. I just wanted to tell you about that because I I was just so grateful for making pieces of art and objects and things that sit on nightstands. And there's something wonderful about the way that they hang around and are just sitting there when you need them, you know, Mm -hmm. and that they're not on a screen and that they're not full of distractions or anything else that it can be this, this refuge in itself. Um, Yeah. And I was just, I was just thinking of that because that just happened a few hours ago and I was grateful for it. Yeah, I have a couple things to say about that, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Please. Um, I think Ethan Hawke um, maybe is trying to answer this question about uh, what good art does for us in in life, um, where the place is for it. And I, I'm not sure it's him. It doesn't matter, especially if it is an actor that said this. It's more the point of what's said, which is when someone dies, what do we reach for? you know, at the memorial or the funeral, but poetry, you know, something to read, something that like does the, the death and life justice. And, and usually it's words. And I'm reminded of that knowing your friend looked over and got what she needed right then, not by calling a medical professional Mm -hmm. or a mental health professional, or not that she maybe doesn't need that too, but just really feeling the, the power of art as a medicine and a salve for us during the hardest times. Um, and I want you to know, Nick, that your friend, my friend, I texted that friend and I told them that they, I read their words to community in San Quentin. And the words I read were about holding space for others, listening and, and the power of that listening. And the group you know I facilitate with every week in in San Quentin is the Suicide Prevention Peer Support Community. Mm-hmm. And and you, the friend you're talking about replied and said when she got this news of her other friend having committed suicide, 
that text came in right then, <laughs> which is just wild to dig in right now and say like, wait, are you really great? And have you say, well, here's really what's going on. And then have you share that? And I just immediately had that text exchange with the friend I know you're talking about. I'm almost sure you're talking about. So I think we're um, talking about different people, but I, I don't, I don't, but okay. That's wild. <laughs> if we, okay. That's also wild. If we're talking about different people, I don't think you know this person at all. Mm, wow. Then that is amazing. Uh, almost equally magical. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, then we have two versions of, of like words being medicine in the world, which by the way, Nick, knowing you haven't listened to the intro, part of what I say at the beginning of this episode is my interest as a person, a personally, but also as someone who runs a nonprofit, a creatively conscious mortality nonprofit to sourcing, like we do so often on the show, the creatives in our lives, the people that are creatively engaging with life and death, because any version of like a definitive answer to these things, I'm not as interested in, and I don't know that they exist. And science and some doctor or whoever else isn't going to get me closer to this, these things. It's the artists and the writers and the words. And, and it just, it feels perfect also for that reason that you brought up yeah. this, you know, it's like, that's what I want to, that gets me closer to death. Yeah. You know, we uh, weddings too. I was going to say, it's funny how these like monumental moments, I think people put, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think people put a very low value. If you just surveyed people, like what value does poetry have in your life? <laughs> it would probably pull mm -hmm. in the fractional percentages. But yeah, if there's a wedding or a funeral right. or like life transition, everybody's like Googling like poetry for this <laughs> moment, you know, words. it's like, yes. I need it now. Yeah. I need it now. <laughs> yeah, finally. Um, and uh, there are people who are living in that state more, even just feeling that state more than others or um, connected com to communities who are in that state more than yeah. others, you know, that more often. Where, yeah. that anytime I'm thinking for myself, of something that I don't value, I try to think of, uh, is that a universal thing? Is that, is, are, are there potentially different communities, different ways of life where it has a different resonance and has a different need that I don't have in my life? You know, that's like speaking to seeing your own privilege in a way, but like breaking it down more specifically about like what that looks like. Mm. Um, I, I, I uh, just try always trying to be more aware of that. Like just because you don't need something doesn't mean it's a very needed thing in the world. Yeah. Right. Both directions on all that. Right. I feel like that's your point. Yeah. You know, like I need art, I need words, I need music. And, and I've said before, um, maybe on the show, but you know, music sometimes gives me more medicine than any doctor or therapist ever has. And, and, and I, for sure that's true for me in my life. And I know the reliance on those people, uh, experts, wise, you know, experts in, in their profession have saved lives and, and taken care of people in, in the most important of ways. So yeah, all, all the directions on that. Um, but, but, you know, for the purposes of this space, not that we don't have doctors on, but, um, so often it's, it's, it's the creatives and, and really maybe even for me, I'm more interested in the doctors or therapists or, 
um, end of life professionals that are creatively more than others in that work too. And really Caleb Wild is a version of that. And I talked about this enough already and the interview certainly gives people access to it, but that he's made this creative choice out of 20 years of being in the profession to make a transition and make a shift. And, and to me, that's like a, a pretty significant moment of creativity, you know, really just taking the leap while maybe he hasn't started creating the next chapter. He's, he's cleaning the, the slate, you know, he's, he's pulling out a, a fresh canvas and, um, and certainly has plenty of, of materials to pull on to like start filling that new canvas from the work he's done and what his life has been the last 20 years plus. Mm -hmm. But, um, it feels to me like he's a version of, of the professional who's also paying attention in really creative ways for how to do this like death and dying conversation. Mm -hmm. That matters a lot to me. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Uh, appreciate you. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode. Just apologies for, again, um, making you listen to me sing spontaneously, but hopefully it got you rating and reviewing. Um, if I get over 10 ratings and reviews out of this episode, I won't sing again. <laughs> but... If you don't give me those reviews, then you're going to get more songs. This could get complicated. Maybe people liked it. I don't know. Can't wait to see what you think, Nick. You haven't heard it yet. Oh, man. All right, everybody. Sounds like blackmail or something. <laughs> it is. It's a, it gets complicated. Um, but thanks, listeners, for surviving it, making it through this episode. Uh, until next time, bye-bye. Bye, Nick. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.